Hi, I'm Joel Backen, and this is the Unfortunately Necessary Podcast. Season 1, The Challengers. Episode 2, Protest and Politics. This is a podcast that picks up on the themes from my two books, The Corporation and The New Corporation, and from the two documentary films that were based on those books. In each episode, we tell you stories about challengers and challenges of the growing global movement against corporate power, but united by a common cause to stop the corporate takeover of society and to create a just, democratic, and sustainable world. For this episode, we're looking at the phenomenon of activists who protest against corporations moving into electoral politics. We've got two parts to this episode. This is part one, where we interview Anjali Apaturai about her run for politics in the last election. In part two, we discuss what happened with her since the election. But before Anjali, we'll kick it all off with another unlikely protester turned politician. First, some context. Since the 1960s, electoral politics have not been cause for a lot of excitement among progressives. We know that we'll be disappointed that our favorite progressive politicians and parties won't get elected or won't get elected in sufficient numbers to form governments, or when they do get elected, they become disappointingly mainstream. And it's all of that, but something else too. Many of us as activists see our mission as protesting government, not being part of it, as marching in the streets, occupying the squares. That's what's important. And politics, politicians, governments, they're seen as kind of the the bad guys or at best kind of stodgy and unmovable. The idea is to target them with resistance, opposition, and dissent, not to become part of them, co-opted by them. But I think these kinds of attitudes among progressives have been changing. These types of sort of negative views towards electoral politics and governments are are shifting. And it's one of the key stories in the new corporation film and book that progressive electoral politics is making a comeback. That progressive politicians are getting elected. And they're imagining new ways to do democratic politics. And that protest is no longer enough. That we need to work through government, not only against it. Listen to these three clips from the new corporation film. The first is from Micah White, one of the founders of the Occupy movement. The next from Shama Sawant, a former Occupy activist who was then elected as a city councilor in Seattle. And the last from political organizer and Bernie Sanders surrogate, Jonathan Tassini. Occupy Wall Street was a constructive failure, but it taught us something very important. We need to pair protests with gaining sovereignty, which means either pairing protests with winning elections or pairing protests with winning wars. And you can choose as an activist. I would advocate elections. We have shown that it's possible to succeed as an independent, grassroots, openly socialist campaign, not taking any money from big business. This moment belongs to that way of organizing. Historically, progressive movements were more interested 
about building power in the streets, which is an important thing, and they kind of neglected running for office. I think now progressives are starting to see the nature of power, where it lies, and the reason to contest for it. Now we have thousands of people saying, hey, I want to run for office. There's protest against what is, and then there's proposition about what should be. And it's the beautifully necessary synergy between these two things that drives progressive social change. So let me start with the protest side of that synergy. Protest is a word that conjures images of marches, of occupations, against poverty, against racism, colonialism, climate change, uh, anti-globalization marches against corporate power, uh, recent marches against racism in the wake of George Floyd's brutal police murder, the Occupy movement. When I think of protest, I think of all these things, but I also think of something else. Growing up in suburban Vancouver in the 1970s and 80s, passionate about both music and politics and seeing myself as a bit of a rebel. When I think of protest, I can't help but think of a band, also from Vancouver's suburbs, but that quickly rose to international punk rock stardom. DOA. And its front person, Joe Keithley, a.k.a. Joey Shethead. They were unapologetically and intensely political. Every song, every performance, an act of protest. Protest against politicians and war, against banks and mega corporations, racism and police violence, against a capitalist system that exploited workers and the environment, and that forced people out of their homes and into poverty. DOA was as pure and raw in its protest as anything in the history of music. The band even protested against those who didn't understand it was about protest. Gonna change the world one day. So there's the propositional part that underlies the protest, the vision of a better world. A world that, to quote from another DOA song, ain't gone so wrong. But that world in DOA's songs was not something we were going to get to from government, from the state, from the system. These were institutions to rebel against, not to rely upon. They pushed their phony morals all the time and they try to tell me what to do, goes another DOA lyric. But I'm like a bomb that's ready to blow. Then I light the fuse. I chew up the rules and spit them out. Watch your step. I'm the rebel kind and I won't tow that line. Powerful words, protesting words, but not a lot of room in those words for a positive and progressive role for government and the state. 
Indeed, as another DOA lyric goes, smash the state. You're not on your own. You're not alone. We got the numbers. Which sums up a much larger and pervasive mood of protest that began to develop in the 1960s that carried through the 80s and 90s, including the punk rock movement, into the anti-globalization movement, and ultimately the Occupy and related movements. And the mood was this. Rebel against authority. Protest against government. Smash the state. Work against the system. Don't work within it. Don't be co-opted. Government is not your friend. But then something began to change in the wake of Occupy and those other movements around the world that were similar to it and happening around the same time. These postures began to be questioned, these postures of constant opposition and protest, because once everyone had left or been forcibly removed from the streets and squares, from the encampments, the same old system was still standing. In fact, it had barely been scratched. And activists began to realize something more was needed than just protest. And a lot of them began looking to electoral politics, trying to find ways to unite their activist energy with the work that they might be able to do within government, not just against it. They formed new political parties and movements. They ran for election. But right now, I want to return to DOA and Joe Keithley. The band's still making records. In fact, Joe's hard at work on a new one. And the songs are still political, about poverty and houselessness, labor strikes. But somewhere along the way, something happened to Joe Keithley. That paragon of punk rock protest ran for election and became a city councilor in Burnaby. And I see his story from punk rebel to progressive politician is really endemic of this larger movement. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on to The Challengers. Yeah, no, no, thanks for having me. I'd like to start with your music. I mean, there are so many examples of musicians being political in a song or maybe a few. I mean, Sam Cooke's Change is Gonna Come, Billie Holiday, Strange Fruit, Bob Dylan, uh, the Times They Are Changing, Buffy St. Marie, One Tin Soldier. And those are just a few. I mean, there's so many more. But what's unique about you and DOA is that every song is political. Could you talk about that? I mean, it's kind of chicken and egg, but what came first for you, politics or music? I got into music when I was about uh, 11. I wanted to be a drummer. And uh, at my sister's wedding, they had a band, a live band, and uh, all the adults were partying, and I was the only kid there, so I drummed along on a chair. And I saved the money from my paper route and uh, bought a drum set when I was about 12. So, but then the politics weren't too long after that. The nuclear weapons testing uh, in the Amchika Islands off of Alaska by the uh, U.S. military. Um, so Greenpeace was uh, obviously formed in Vancouver and was new at that point. So in grade 11, I guess that would be like 
1973 or whatever, Greenpeace organized, uh, went around to the schools around uh, Metro Vancouver and said, hey, come on down to the U.S. consulate downtown Vancouver, march around, protest, let them know that we mean, bu- mean business and they should stop this bullshit, right? So um, so we all left our school. Um, our principal blocked the driveway, put his arms out like he was going to block 300 kids. It was one of the funniest things. I wish I had a I wish I had an iPhone those days, and I wish I had that footage, right? Some square going, like, you're not going anywhere. And then we marched down to uh, Bankrupt Tech and Britannia and yelled outside and got all these kids. So we were a thousand kids down there marching around downtown. And this happened all around Lower Mainland. I found out years later, you know, from Richmond, from North Van, uh, other parts of Vancouver. And uh, so that kind of politicized the whole thing. And um, um, some of the artists you mentioned, like, uh, um, I really got... I didn't realize it till later, but folk music got me into politics. It was my older sister playing folk music, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, Bob Dylan, um, Woody Guthrie, stuff like that, right? And that kind of stuff, it just seeped in there. And then it came out in the songs when I started writing them when I was about 19. Hmm. That's so cool. It reminds me of um, the climate protests recently when all the kids left school around the world to protest against climate change. That's so cool. That was happening in the 70s and, and Greenpeace initiating it. Uh, you know, things come full circle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because uh, there's a lot of stuff going on at that time. Uh, you think, well, we started in 78. So through 78, 79, 80, uh, Ronald Reagan became president. He was the big stimulus for punk rock. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, obviously in England, uh, was a, another force of evil that was uh, running a, a big country where there was a lot of punk rock involved in politics. And also like um, uh, poverty and people not having jobs, right? You know, if you think about the system in England and um, and America wasn't doing particularly well either. We think about uh, in a massive recession, um, environmental degradation was like... Think about Love Canal and uh, different things in our environmental uh, disastrous past that weren't addressed or were allowed to go. So people did start coming to the shows because of the politics. They were attracted to, there was a certain sect that the Bon Vivants that just wanted to see the crazy stuff. And there's people like, like, oh, I heard these guys are political. So now you're a politician and, and speaking of, of art and politics, so I just you know released a, a film called The New Corporation. And one of the points of the film is that there is happening and there needs to be a shift of activist energy into electoral politics. Not necessarily that we have to abandon protests. We have to keep doing that, but in addition to protest. And, uh, you know, that that neither protest nor electoral politics are sufficient. Both are necessary. And I'm wondering if you can talk about your own journey uh, from a rebel punk rocker wanting to smash the state to a progressive politician that is now part of the state. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Uh, well, like in 96... Uh, so you're going back 25 years, uh, there was this forest in my area in Burnaby that they wanted to cut down, you know, talking like 20 acres or whatever, um, uh, to put in like a high-tech um, industrial park. So myself and a few of my friends and neighbors in the area, we organized about a, a 1,600-person petition to try and stop this. And uh, we bombarded City Hall uh, meeting and... Uh, um, with songs and speeches and stuff like that. And, and of course, the mayor at the time, 
um, Derek Corrigan and his counsel, um, you know, turned out just listen to us and went like, go ahead and vote the thing I have one like, you know, okay, thanks for bringing this word. Now, F you, get out of my face type thing, right? And uh, shortly after that, it's got a little bit of local press. Uh, a guy from the Green Party phoned me up and says, hey, uh, this is Tom, I'm from the Green Party. We're looking for a candidate in the provincial election. This is 1996. And I said on there on the phone, like, you know who you're talking to, don't you? My name is Joe Shithead. You know, I'm not running for your party. What are you talking about? Like, you're out of your mind, right? And I hung up, right? And uh, I think I thought about it for like a week or two. And I thought, hmm, yeah, I've always been interested in politics. And I got dragged in. I was like, uh, that was my first campaign. I think I came fourth out of six candidates. So I didn't finish dead last anyways, right? And I, I had three signs. They gave me three cloth signs. I made some flyers and I had my young children. I bribed them with candy and they came around and delivered flyers with me around the neighborhood, right? So, so that was the third. So to get to where it is now, that took a long time. Like I, this was my sixth time running, either provincially, four times provincially, two times civically in Burnaby. And um, it, took a lot, it took a lot of work, but I think uh, what, you know what really helped me the most was people knew DOA and the people that voted it wasn't because they were fans, but they understood like the politics that the band had been talking about and when, what I have been talking about. And, you know, it's like, you know, it's not like they had records and T-shirts and stuff like that or been to concerts. They like, oh, yeah, you're that guy from that band. Then people took it seriously. Oh, yeah, he's been talking about these issues for a long time. And so now that you're on city council, what kind of issues are are you most passionate about and, and do you work on? Yeah, I mean, the, the big one is housing, um, which every, I get pretty, pretty sick of hearing this. And we're in the middle of a campaign right now in Canada uh, where everybody's going to come up with affordable housing. Well, that's probably not going to happen, right? But what we do need to find is housing, period, right? And then find, uh, get the housing built, find some way for people to get in there and help them pay for it, right? This is the, to me, was the key issue that I got elected on. And this is still the key issue that everybody's grappling with that in a, in our region and, you know, all the way across Canada, like whether it's Montreal, Toronto, Calgary, um, housing is unaffordable, uh, where where physical jobs are. Like you could live out in a cabin, although with the forest fire problems we're having now, then maybe that's not such a wise idea, you know, if you're working online or whatever, right? Um, so we have to find a way to house people. So that's that really revolves around building building a lot more rentals and a lot more co-ops and uh, a lot more housing that socially assisted for, you know, seniors, uh, disabled people, uh, less fortunate people. So that's the number one thing. Um, and that and also intakes a, a big, big problem that we have. You see it all around the United States and, and Canada is helping the vulnerable, which is the, the homeless people, right? Or houseless, whatever you want to say. And uh, so that is something you just can't ignore a growing population that lives under a freeway overpass, right? Um, I mean, if you drive through Seattle, it's amazing the the camps that you see underneath their massive freeway system they have and the, that intersects the two main uh, highways there. And uh, so that's, that, that's their stuff. The main thing, um, sustainability within the city, right? So 
Um, I'm the chair of the city's environment committee. So that's one of the key areas that I'm working on is try and find a way we can provide all these services and get people about their daily lives and get them out of their cars and uh, fight climate change, right? So, and we're only one city, we're a quarter million people. So what that comes out to a percentile in the world population is pretty small. But the big thing is we know that we all have to change this, right? I mean, they're even realizing that in a place like China, you know, where they're, they're adapting. You know, they realize this is not a sustainable thing for the world, right? So, and I think this is like going back to some of your earlier comments that you think about activists getting in politics. Well, you need activists getting into politics so they can enact that change, right? Because the old school, we live, would just go along, everything's fine forever until it's a complete disaster. We're verging on disaster now, right? So I think the big thing is that you're talking about staying connected with the grassroots. Yeah. Well, I mean, I started out with the um, uh, environmentalists here in Burnaby, and that's what we keep trying to work on. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I go to our protests um, to try and stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, TMX. And, you know, there are different stuff going on around the city or around the region that you have to stay stay involved in. Otherwise, I think you become, it's, to me, it's like really like a, this is a lot like being in a band. Because people like when, I, when I'm when i on tour, I don't hide out in the dressing room or the hotel or something like that. I go out and talk to people, hang out with the audience. And because if you go to a town and you don't talk to people, you really have no idea what's going on in that town. There's some issue. You just like you show up, uh, you have the lyrics on a video prompter in front of you, and you go through the motions, collect your pay, and uh, go to the next town. And it's like, and to me, uh, that's to become you just become really a disconnected rock star if you take that type of attitude, right? So, and it's the same thing with politicians that you have to stay involved with people and listen to them. You know, and I listen to lots of people that don't make any sense, but it doesn't matter. It's my duty as an elected official to listen to them, get a sense of what they're concerned about. And I, just to further on that, I listen to a lot of people that do make sense as well. <laughs> just <laughs> Well, you're making a whole lot of sense to me, uh, Joe Keithley. Thanks for getting out there and stirring things up. And thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Great chatting with you. <laughs> We interviewed climate activist Anjali Apadurai a few years ago for the new corporation. Give a listen. She's preceded by a brief introduction from the narrator and then followed by Lord John Brown, the former CEO of British Petroleum, and ProPublica journalist Abram Lusgarden. Climate change now in plain view. Fossil fuel companies have stopped actively denying that it's happening. They've discovered that a better strategy for them now in the age of active climate breakdown is to charm us all into believing that they're part of the solution. Saying, okay, we're going to invest in renewables, but meanwhile, we have to keep using fossil fuels for a long time. So, you know, we can use lighter fuels like natural gas, but we have to be realistic. It is impossible, impossible to displace carbon fully for a very long time. 
Gas is a very good uh, carbon fuel. You have to see this as one more arrow in the large quiver of delay tactics and ways to preserve what's really the core of their business, not the core of the best interest of society. We need to transition to the cleanest form of carbon-free energy as quickly as possible. If we were to do this by tomorrow, it wouldn't be fast enough. In September 2021, we interviewed Anjali for this podcast after she decided to run for the NDP in Vancouver Granville. This interview was before the election. In part two, we'll follow up with what happened since then. Hey, Anjali, thanks for coming on the Unfortunately Necessary podcast. Thanks for having me, Joel. What an honor. Can you start by telling me why you got into climate activism and maybe briefly what you've been up to as a climate activist over the last decade or so? I think I've always been an activist at heart from, a, from childhood. I was born in India. There are plenty of opportunities to see inequality in action. And I remember, you know, as a child, the logic of that not making sense to me as to why we were okay and had food and some didn't. Coming from that immigrant context, I started doing human rights activism in high school. The local Red Cross at the time, when they had funding for this, had an incredible youth activism program that was focused on global human rights issues, um, anti-war, landmines, child soldiers, that kind of thing. And uh, it wasn't until I started attending the, the UN conferences on climate change as part of my undergrad that I was suddenly found myself in the midst of this international geopolitical fight over justice and power and colonialism and, 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 and deeply, deeply realized how climate change is an issue of justice. It's, you know, it's about the legacy of neoliberal expansion across the world. It's about colonial legacies repeating themselves and continuing themselves. I did some work with an environmental law firm to hold fossil fuel companies accountable. And then um, my most recent work has been with Sierra Club BC, where I lead the climate justice program, trying to bring in more of that justice lens to what has been a very traditionally environmental conservation organization. You're an activist, I mean, through and through, as you say, from when you were quite young. But recently, you made a big announcement. I'm Anjali Apadurai. We are in a climate emergency. We need a Green New Deal for all. I'm new to politics, but I'm not new to the fight. September 20th, vote. That's a big change of course for you. And I'm wondering if you can tell us about that, what you're doing now and how it's going. <laughs> I am currently running for federal office as the NDP candidate in Vancouver Granville. <laughs> I was a sort of dedicated anti-electoral politics type of activist for many years and had been asked to run for office before, had never thought it was for me. This time when I was approached, something felt very different. Something in the air was different. I mean, literally something in the air was different. We were breathing in wildfire smoke and you know from fire unprecedented fires burning across the province and we had just suffered this terrible heat wave that had claimed hundreds of lives and then we were seeing the world burning climate impacts around the world greece was on fire germany was flooding and i think my thinking was forced to evolve in that sense around how our social movements intersect with these 
electoral systems that I've criticized my whole life and are in many ways broken. But there was a different imperative this time to to step in and to start building the public infrastructure that we so desperately need if we're going to get out of the climate crisis in a fair and just way. The reason I never saw myself in electoral politics is because my my understanding of social movements was that the movements are the moral compass of the future we want to see, right? And my assumption was that when movements start to um, get intertwined with institutions, especially deeply colonial and capitalist institutions, you start to lose that moral compass, or at least it gets watered down. And so that's why you can't have the two deeply intertwined. You need those on the fringes who are truly radical, who are holding that line. But I'm starting to understand also that the movement is collective, but it's also individual. And we have to know who our people are and where they fit. And as long as our orientation is oriented firmly towards the same thing, which is justice, which is a better life for everyone, leaving no one behind, then my kind of sense is like, I want to serve in the place that's best for me along that spectrum of change makers. I think it matters who specifically you put in those seats. Were you inspired, influenced by the AOCs of the world? People like Ada Colau, the mayor of Barcelona, or Shama Sawant in Seattle. I mean, did you say to yourself, wow, I want to be part of that. I want to be like those folks. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've been inspired by these figures for years, right? And I wanted to uplift them and make sure that, you know, to the extent possible, these people are taking their messages from the social movements that are the, the heartbeat of change. And they they seemed to be. And of course, there's always going to be conflicts and tensions there. I really looked up to them and I see that there is that wave of progressive, wonderful people staying accountable to the values of social movements. Of course, the candidate is not the only person. The ecosystem also lined up in a really beautiful way. Do you think that you and other progressive politicians can become a strong enough force in political institutions to free government from corporate influence, to make government an effective democratic voice for challenging corporate power? I think yes. I have to say yes. Otherwise, why would I be doing this? I think it really matters that there's as many of us as possible and that people do see that wave of like Shama Sawant, AOC, as a wave that they can join. I oh, Another thing that pushed me at this point, when I said there's something in the air, I really think the pandemic was a re very revealing time for a lot of people. You know, it was that like the emperor's not wearing clothes moment where people saw the failures of our current economic model very much laid bare. Like, certain people were publicly making billions of dollars from the pandemic and that was very hard for people to stomach as they were out of jobs and out of homes etc there's an opportunity there where people are ready for something that that is 
fundamentally different from business as usual. So now I want to hand the microphone over to one of my podcast colleagues, Kat Dogs, who has a few questions for Anjali. And so uh, here you go, Kat. Hello. Hi, Anjali. Thank you and, for having uh, me. Thank you for joining us. I think it's really exciting that you're bringing this vision to the NDP and to politics in Canada right now. I personally was quite excited when I heard you were running. And a little context for our listeners, as Joel had mentioned, you were also in the new corporation. My role is as impact producer. Uh, and now, of course, we're also in the middle of uh, this lawsuit against Twitter. So I'm also a co-plaintiff in that. But in terms of the impact side of what we've been up to, you and I have been in conversation for quite a, a few months now uh, in the context of our thousand screenings to connect the dots that are within the film around climate justice. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you see that as important and, and perhaps also how you feel the new corporation itself actually framed that issue for you. Yeah. So climate justice is the label that, you know, all my work falls under. And when the corporation came out and then when the new corporation was um, being developed, that was tremendously exciting for me because to me it brought a dimension of climate justice that is not often part of the issue, but is actually the heart of the issue, which is that it's corporate power and supported by this neoliberal economic paradigm that we are in right now, that is not only the biggest blocker to climate action, but is the biggest blocker to any sort of, any sort of true social safety net or a true um, sense of a collective society where no one falls through the cracks, which is, you know, my political leanings. We don't really have an anti-capitalist analysis most times in our climate conversations, especially here in North America. And so to me, the film is bringing that in in a really accessible way. The film just calls that out perfectly. And we cannot tackle climate change without tackling capitalism, which means we cannot ignore the power of corporations. So that was, sorry, that was long-winded, but um, the film was just really, really impactful for me, as it was for a lot of people, both films. And I, and I really hope it gets out there more because we need this to be part of our climate conversation. Absolutely. What do you think about things like that? Like this is in terms of control over the, the liberals right now and the, and the oil industry. Yeah, because I'm new to politics, you know, and it's there's such a brick wall between like what happens on the inside and what the public are hearing, obviously. But like the culture, I think a lot of it has to do with culture that has built up um, in terms of how governments interact with corporations. It's not laid into law. It's not this unbreakable thing. It's just decades and decades of deep cultural political ties between the government and the fossil fuel industry. Maybe I'm trivializing it, I don't know. But to me, these handshake agreements built up over years and years to the point where 
it's not even a question for the government to increase subsidies to an industry as dangerous and as ill-fated as the fossil fuel industry is a question of, um, yes, of course, there's laws that have to change, but it's a question of like, what is our political culture right now that that is an unquestioned assumption that, that the fossil fuel industry just has access to government like that. Of course, I'm still an outsider, so that sounds pretty naive to some people, but whatever. And um, yeah, the goal is to go in and, and question that like basic assumption. Why are we still subsidizing the fossil fuel industry? And then the other, the other burning issue, not to make a pun on the burning issue that is actually burning, uh, but there seems to be that the, there's been a growing um, show of force against protesters and protectors, as as those those activists would rather be referred to, the land protectors and the land defenders. Um, and this is this is something that I, I think we're seeing over over and over again, more and more. What do you think needs to be done about that? I, and I guess this is think, thinking of you now as a candidate. Um, what do you think you can do about some of that that particular uh, horrible activity that's been going on, even in the BC forest recently? Yeah, there has been unfortunately, and. I mean, data is showing this, and I think even the data is incomplete and not telling the full picture, but there's been a meteoric rise in harm, deaths and assassinations against land defenders in the past decade across the world. And I think that trend is only continuing, unfortunately, as we sort of come to this conflict zone where people are standing up to a very, very, very strong economic paradigm and that economic paradigm is being challenged more than ever. And that's happening right here in BC. And the police is being utilized as an arm of the status quo state, the capitalist colonial state. And there's like no other way to conceptualize that. Why are the police being deployed against peaceful protector, uh, peaceful, yeah, protectors? So what's happening right now in Ferry Creek is a really important battleground. What's happening there is just, it's, it's beyond vile and it's exposing these political choices. Like these are policy choices that are happening. Like the protesters having their hair ripped out in clumps and tear gassed straight to the face. That's a policy choice, in my opinion. And when that regime of economic extraction is being challenged, like right at that site, right at that physical site, there is a clear political choice to be made. So these protesters are actually doing this critical job for us and exposing the bareness of that choice, I think. What can I do? Legitimize? land defense as a legitimate interruption to business as usual, normalize it. I mean, a lot of those in office right now are calling for, you know, immediate police reviews, things like that. Um, I think it's less about the police. I mean, yes, it's definitely about the police and we need to like severely rein in the police and put in place some accountability measures. 
very soon, but I think it's about the state behind the police and exposing the choices that they've made in that regard. Thank you. I love to keep talking about this really important topic, but I think our time for now has come to an end and I'm going to let Joel uh, say a few words to wrap out this uh, episode and we will come back to uh, part two of episode two after the election. Thanks, Kat. And thank you so much, Anjali. Fascinating stuff and we're so inspired by your run for office. And thanks again to Joe Keithley, Darcy Hamilton, who does all the technical stuff that I don't know how to do, Jen Evans, Suji Chowdhury, and of course, all of you out there in podcast land, listening to the Unfortunately Necessary Podcast. We'll see you next time. 